my wife was like, get your gum out. I love that I can come and just be myself with you guys. I'm going to turn this light on because I need some light. Um, you, most of you guys know me or have known me since I was you know, young, very young. And uh, some of you guys have, you know, I've, I've taught once in this church already. And um, I'm just so pumped to be here. Uh, thank you, Jason. You know, thank you, everybody, for allowing me to come. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, thankful to be one of the ones who, who prayed with Jason and Josh about this and to see you guys in a place and God's provisions and he's moving. It's just such a cool thing. So um, I'm thankful that all you guys are a part of it. Uh, with that, um, I know you guys are studying through the book of Matthew and man, what, how, how fun is it to go through a gospel and just to hear about Jesus, stories you've heard before, but to apply them to your life and to know more about him and, and to experience the things that he experienced and go, man, that's who I am supposed to be becoming. And, uh, you know, the book of Matthew focuses a lot on, the, uh, you know, the king, uh, Jesus, the king, the lion of Judah and, and all his actions and his miracles and uh, how active he was here. But I am. Uh, I want to bring you guys to the book of John. Um, and if you know about the book of John, actually all the Gospels represent different ways. You know, they saw uh, the story, the Gospel. Um, you know, the book of John, John focuses on the deity of God. He wanted to go through the book and, and, and remind everybody that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God. Uh, you know, the book of Mark focuses on Jesus, the servant. Uh, so you learn about him and his, you know, Jesus being the servant. The book of Matthew uh, talks about him being the king, the king of, uh, of Israel, the, the king of kings, and uh, him being active as the king. Uh, and then the book of Luke talks a lot about his humanity. You know, Luke was a doctor, so he really spoke about Jesus and his humanity. So um, they all have their own, like, ways of seeing it. But before we get started, I'm going to pray, and that way we all get our hearts right. Father, we thank you for you, and we thank you just as we read those songs of your unchanging grace, um, that you are so consistent in all of our inconsistencies, and, and God, we just thank you for that, Lord, that you would accept us to come into your presence and to hear about your word and to grow closer to you, and it's all through being dressed in your son's righteousness, Lord. I just thank you for today. I pray that you and put your spirit upon us, Lord as we go through these words, and let, let this story be uh, alive to us, Father. Um, again, I thank you for this church and what you're doing. Continue to bless what you have started here, Father. Uh, continue to move the feet of those you've got working, Lord, and uh, we just thank you for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in the book of John, and I'm going to start in John chapter 4. Um, now, I just I keep thinking about the songs. That last song says, Faultless Stand Before the Throne. Have you ever thought what it's going to be like when you get to heaven? Like, right now, you think you know what your eyes are for. But when you get to heaven, you're really going to see what your eyes were made for. You're going to see things that you could never comprehend here. And to be able to stand before the throne of God faultless, in all of our faults that we have here, I mean, just think of that. Think of what that's going to be like. That's why we run the race. That's why we keep the ordinances. That's why we do what we do. That's awesome. It does sound like a Keurig. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, so we are in John chapter 4. But before we get into that, I kind of want to do a small recap uh, of this gospel. Um, again, this is the gospel according to John. The cool thing about the gospel according to John, John is writing it as a very old man. Uh, he, 
Uh, he has gone through life. Uh, he has done his work. Uh, he has been dipped in oil. He has been banished to the island of Patmos. And he finds his way now being an elder in the church of Ephesus. Uh, but he was also uh, one of the last apostles to live. He was the only one that wasn't martyred. Uh, they say that his martyrdom was long life, that, that the rest of them were martyred early and they got to go be with Christ, yet he had to stay here. Um, so John got to see a lot of what happened with the early church. Um, he got to travel. Uh, even when he was so old that he couldn't walk, they would carry him from town to town, places where churches have been started, so that John could tell of his experiences about Christ. Because if you know anything about John, he refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. He had a very special connection with Jesus. He came to know Jesus when he was a teenager. He was very young. And so he got to sit down with Jesus on a beach and have two-hour conversations with him about who he was and, and to experience that. Um, I think we talked about that in the, the beginning of Mark. So um, John is now writing this as an old man, and he's seeing the early church, and he's going, there must be some question of Jesus and his deity already. And so G John writes his gospel so that everybody knows, hey, first so you know, I knew Christ. I walked with him. I handled him. I heard his words firsthand. And so John uh, is writing this gospel again, explaining the deity. He almost sets it up kind of like a courtroom where he brings up witnesses and get their testimony of Christ. He starts the whole first chapter as him giving his testimony of who Christ was. And he, he, you know, he says, this is why he's the Messiah. And then he brings up John the Baptist. Uh, he was one of John the Baptist's disciples that left John the Baptist to follow after Christ because John the Baptist told him to. And uh, he tells him that John the Baptist knew that this was the Christ, that he called him out, that he baptized him, that he saw that the, you know, God said the one that the Spirit has sent upon and, and maintains or stays upon, that will be the Messiah. That happened. He witnessed those things. John the Baptist, every time he saw Jesus walking up or coming near, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So he used John the Baptist as you know, giving his testimony of who uh, Christ was. So uh, as you go through, you know, it starts off he, um, you know, with John, uh, John the Baptist giving his testimony. Uh, and then Jesus begins his miracles. And we all know it starts at the wedding in Cana. Uh, that was the first miracle uh, John records uh, in the Bible or in his gospel. Um, shortly after that, he goes in to cleanse the temple for the first time. So he shows up to Jerusalem, and he sees what's happening, and he goes, this is not how my father's house is supposed to be going. Um, that's when he makes the whip, and he starts whipping. It doesn't say he hit anybody, but I believe he hit some people. Um, but it doesn't say that. Uh, we have a, a, a Wednesday night Bible study, and when we talked about whether or not he probably hit somebody, it doesn't matter. It doesn't say if he did or didn't. He made a whip, and he drove out the money changers, and he drove out the animals. One of our, one of our people in our Bible study says, Jesus was not a weenie. I'm like, that is so true. He was not. And so that's kind of our, uh, you know, John, the gospel of John. That's our, we're going to make t-shirts that say that. Um, but shortly after that, we get into John chapter 3. That's an iconic chapter, right? John chapter 3. He sits down with a man named Nicodemus, and he says some of the most profound things. I mean, you could literally take the, the, gospel, the, the, the third chapter in John, and you could walk somebody through the gospel. And you can explain to them what it means. And, and, and some, I just want to highlight some of the things, because as we get into John chapter 4, uh, they, they kind of coexist. Jesus says for the first time to Nicodemus that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus goes, what does that even mean? I don't understand. And to understand who Nicodemus was, Nicodemus was one of the rulers of the Jews. Nicodemus was uh, under Gamaliel. Uh, Nicodemus was a, one of the 75 Sanhedrin. I mean, uh, it, just to give you context, and I'm going to get the numbers a little jumbled, jumbled but it doesn't matter. Um, of the 6,000 
uh, rabbis in, in Israel at the time. I think there was, or was it, no, 60,000 rabbis? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up. Um, there was, let's say 6,000 rabbis. There were 4,400 Pharisees. Oh, no, no, 4,400 Levites. Then there was like 2,200 Pharisees. And then of those 2,200 Pharisees, there was only 75 Sanhedrin. He was one of, of, of a small number of, you know, very ultra-religious, the center of theology. He was under Gamaliel at the time. I mean, he was, he was in a very important man. And so for him to come to Jesus and Jesus have this conversation, Jesus knew he, who he was talking to. And Nicodemus knew who he thought he was. And when Jesus said, you must be born again, he says, I don't understand these spiritual things. I don't know what you're talking about. How can somebody be born again? Do they have to enter back into their mother's womb? That doesn't happen. I've seen three childbirths. There's no way it's going back in. You know, so, uh, <laughs> you know, Jesus says you must be born again. And they go on to talk about it. And then Jesus explains that you must be born of water and born of spirit. And there's some controversy of what that means to be born of water. Some people, it means, it means baptism. But we know you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. Um, it's a good thing, but you don't have to do it. Uh, some say it's the, the water was always represented as a cleansing or purification to the Jews. You know, that's what they use running water to wash their hands as a purification. Um, but the way it reads to me is born of water. What are we all born out of? Uh, ambiotic sac full of fluid and it's water, right? The water breaks and then we are born shortly after. So you're born of the water. That's your physical birth. Then you're born of the spirit. That's your spiritual birth. Have you ever heard the saying, uh, born twice, die once, born once, die twice? So you're born once physically, and then if you're born again Christian, you're born of the Spirit. And then you receive what Adam and Eve lost, and therefore you're born twice, and you only die once. We go through a physical death, but then we live for God and eternity. But if you're only born once of the physical and you never receive the spiritual, then unfortunately you die, and then you die spiritually. You're, all, you're, you're separated from God for eternity. So, um, so he's explaining these things. He says, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. He's separating the two. He says, you know, the flesh cannot have communion with God, only the spirit. He'll go on to say that God is spirit and we must worship in spirit and truth. Therefore, what's flesh is flesh and what's spirit is spirit. So, so uh, we must be born again for that reason. Uh, and he still doesn't kind of understand it. And Jesus says, you don't need to understand it. And he gives him an analogy. He says, just as the wind blows and you can see the effects of the wind, you can see it blowing through the trees, you can feel it on your skin. You don't know where the wind originated. You don't know where it comes from is what he says. It's the same thing. He says, when God moves, you don't know where it originates. You can't understand spiritual things because you've never been born again. And therefore you see its effects, but you don't really understand where it's coming from. And that's the analogy he gives him. Uh, Jesus goes on to tell them that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. I must be lifted up. This is all part of this one conversation. And it's Jesus saying that I will be the son of man that will be lifted up and you will have to look upon me as your savior. He gives the analogy uh, of Moses and the serpents in the wilderness. If you guys know the stories from Numbers, uh, basically the, uh, the, the, and it makes sense, the Israelites at the time were complaining. They were complaining about always having the same food. Always having the same water, always in need, always hungry. They had manna for 40 years. I mean, they wanted something else. And if you want to know what manna is, manna was like donuts that rained in the sky. It was like a, um, it was like a, a bread-like substance that would, that would come down. It would be, be there for them. It wouldn't last very long, so they'd have to gather. But it wouldn't last more than a day or so. So he, um, what would happen is they were complaining, and God... It, it, it tickled his wrath, and God said, okay, fine, if you want to complain about my provisions for you, he sent fiery serpents, and these fiery serpents came in, they began to bite people, and when they bite people, they began to die. Now, when God, when, when there's a curse like that, he also offers the cure. 
So what he said was, you know, he goes, they go to Moses. Moses, we're all dying because these fiery serpents. Can you go to God and tell him to stop? We need help here. And so Moses goes to God. God says, yes, we can fix this. What I want you to do is I want you to make a serpent, and I want you to raise it up on a pole. A serpent always represents sin, right? I mean, throughout the Bible, the serpent represents sin. He also made it out of brass. Brass traditionally is a sign of judgment. It's, it's, it means judgment because of how it is fired um, and created. So basically, you, you take sin, you raise it up on a pole as judgment, and if you were bitten by a snake, you come to that pole and you stare at it. And if you look upon it and you think, God's going to fix this, God's going to cure this, God's gonna, I'm going to live, then you would. But it took them having all-out faith. I mean, think about that. Think if I took... You know, you guys on a, a mission trip to Africa, and if you know Africa, they've got black and green mambas. They're very poisonous. You don't last very long after you get, you get uh, bit. And I'm like, we're not bringing any anti-venom. I'm just going to bring a pole with a snake, and you just have to look at it if you get bit. Right. That would take a lot of faith, right? I mean, that's what they had to do. And Jesus said the same thing. I am that. I will be sin. I will be resurrected in judgment, and I will be, I will be raised up in front of you. And if you look upon me as your Savior and you trust that I will cure you, then you will be cured. And, and so he's, he's comparing himself in that way. He goes on to say some more profound thing. He says, I didn't come into this world to condemn, but to save. He, had no, he, he came into the world not to condemn because he realized that the world was condemned already. He goes on to say, I did not come to uh, uh, condemn the world. I came to save sinners. Well, when he got here, that's all he found, right? He only found sinners. So then he goes on to say this. He says, this is what the condemnation is. When he says that the world was already condemned, this is what the condemnation is. It says, the light has come into the world and that men love darkness rather than the light. Those who draw near to the light get exposed, therefore men remain evil. Imagine what that was like for Christ. He's sitting, this is some kind of nighttime discussion he's having with Nicodemus and he's looking him in the eye and saying, the light of the world has come in. He's speaking of himself. He's saying, I have come into the world and I will be rejected. I am, I am literally the gift of God to you, and I will be rejected by you. I can't imagine in that moment what that meant for him to say that. I imagine a tear came out of his eyes. He's going, I am the light of the world. I have so much to offer, yet I will be rejected. That those who come near to me, yes, their sins may be exposed, but that's what we want. But they said, he said, men will remain evil because they will avoid the light. They will, they will, they will remain in darkness. And so I just can't imagine what that was like. So you have this late night conversation in verse 3 with this devout Jewish Pharisee. where Jew Jesus is showing his love. And I love that you can go through the Bible and you can see, yes, he had some spats with the Pharisees. But you have to believe he loved those men. He loved those ultra-religious men in their, they were lost, but he loved them. He sometimes was very harsh with them because of probably what they thought of themselves you know, they often shot themselves in the foot. They worked against themselves because they have what's called dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy basically means that when you're so right, you can't be wrong. And that's what the Pharisees were, that they were always so right that they could not be wrong. It's kind of like if you know somebody that is so hard, they'll never soften up. Somebody that has such a hard heart, they'll never soften up. You know, somebody that is so stiff, you know, Jesus said, you stiff neck, you know, somebody that's so stiff that you'll never be able to bend. And if you don't bend, you'll break. And so that's a dangerous place to be. But he says that you must be born again, born of the Spirit. Why? Because if you're not born of the Spirit and you don't have the Spirit of God, you can't perceive the spiritual things. Guys, that's what sets us apart from the world. 
we can't expect unbelievers, we can't expect the world to understand it the way we do because we have the Spirit of God. We have the Holy Spirit teaching us, showing us, helping us understand that the unbelievers don't have that. So if you're ever in a conversation with an unbeliever and you want to win their soul to Christ, just understand their side of it. They don't know spiritual things. He talks to Nicodemus. Nicodemus probably thinks he is extremely spiritual. I mean, the things he knows. I mean, the, the law. I mean, they, they, Pharisees, they said, I will know the law, I will keep the law, and I will teach the law. I mean, that's what they said. And if you know how many laws there was, it's just impossible. You know? But that was their pride. They, that was their righteousness, was them what they could do. And so, um, so for us, we can perceive the things of God. We can sit here and talk about eternal life and understand what that means. We can sit here and talk about grace and mercy and what it means for him to still accept us knowing who we are. But the unbelieving world doesn't see things that way. And so he has this conversation with him. And I love it. Right after this conversation, um, we, we, we enter into chapter 4. And he's going to have a conversation with a woman who's the complete opposite of... Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus was a man. This woman is a woman. <laughs> and, and if you know, you know, uh, ancient times, gender bias, you know, it's, it's, there was a, a superiority that, that, that they saw. You know, so uh, Pharisees did not, the rabbis did not talk to women. I mean, it was just not what they did in public, but we'll get into that later. You know, Nicodemus was probably a very moral man. He, if he kept the law, you know, there was probably a high level of morality in his life. Well, she would be considered immoral in a lot of ways. Uh, he was a teacher of the law. She would, what you would consider a breaker of the law. Um, you know, he was Jewish. She was considered a half-breed in a lot of ways, and we'll talk about that. He was a Hebrew. She's a Samaritan. The complete opposite, and I love the fact that Jesus reached out to both, that he said, you know what, I'm going to go to the lost, ultra-religious, but I'm also going to go to those who need me. So, let's start in John chapter 4. I'm going to pick up in verse 3. Um, what happens in between there, there's some uh, arguments about baptism and, you know, John the Baptist, they go to him, they're like, Jesus is now baptizing more people than you. Uh, and John's like, great, that's what should happen. Everybody should go to him and not come to me. So that doesn't matter, but just in case you're following along through the story. All right, John chapter 4, verse 3. It says, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So that's going to be going from north, Judea, down in the north, I mean, sorry, the south, the south side of Israel, and heading north up to Galilee. Um, and it says in verse 4 that he needed to go through Samaria. Now, this was a profound thing. If you were Jewish, you didn't go through Samaria. Um, if you traveled from Jerusalem or Judea from the south up to the north, they would go way out of their way to avoid Samaria. They just did not go there. Um, Samaria was full of Samaritans, obviously. Um, and when they would avoid it, they would go off west uh, or east. They would go east toward the Jordan River, and they would go up the Jordan River, and they would kick back west and go to where they were going, most, most likely Nazareth or Galilee and those, those areas. Um, but the Samaritans, they did not want to have any interaction with. And trust me, it is born out of complete racism. I mean, it's prejudice, racism. I mean, it's, it's because they considered them just half-breeds. They considered themselves purebloods, and they considered the Samaritans half-breeds. I don't know if you've got any Harry Potter fans, but they would be the mudbloods, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, me, I'm a big one. So, um, but basically what happened with uh, the, the area of Samaria, um, it's actually, it's in the Promised Land. Um, it's ancient Canaan. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's a big part of the Old Testament. But what happened was, is a lot of those northern tribes, and then when, so, so the Assyrians would come into the nor northern tribes, and they would 
you carry off people, but they would also take other people that they had conquered and they would dump them into this land. So then when they dumped them into this land, there would be interbreeding, uh, intermarriages, and all these things. So the Jews started saying, well, you, you, know, you can't be like us if you're going to be intermarrying in it. You know, God himself told them in the book of Joshua that you don't need to be marrying into these other uh, races and religions because I want you to stay Hebrew. And basically, uh, when the Babylonians came in, the Babylonians would come and they would take everything. So they would take all the best people, they would take all the best things, and they would leave everything behind. So what you have is this group of people that nobody wanted to carry off. They weren't worthy to be carried off into their places and to be intermingled into their societies and their religions. Um, but you also have other races and religions dumped into this area. So they just lived that way. So the Jews hated the Samaritans because they considered them half-breeds. They considered them traitors. Um, they were not worthy to come to Jerusalem. They were not worthy to come to the temple. They could not worship in Jerusalem. Now... Being half-breeds, what they call them, uh, religiously speaking, they were Jews. I mean, they were half-Jews or, or part-Jews or quarter-Jews or 16-Jews. doesn't matter. They believed in the things that the Jews believed in. Now, they only believed in the Pentateuch. It means the first five books of the Bible. They took the first five books of the Bible. They changed a few things. Uh, they believed that Moses came to count Mount Gerizim, and that's where you should worship God. Um, we know that's not true because he didn't come that far in the promised land. So, but they changed things so that they could have it their way because they could not go to Jerusalem. Therefore, they had to say, well, no, he meant to, in our area. Um, so because they changed that Pentateuch, that really ticked off the Jews as well. Um, they go on to build their own temple there on Mount Gerizim. Uh, that did not make the Jews happy. So the Jews actually came in in about 128 BC and just destroyed it, completely destroyed it. So you have to understand the bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. There was just bad blood. The Jews looked down upon them. The Samaritans said, you know, uh, looked up, not up at them, but looked down upon them and their ultra-righteousness and all those things. So when a Jew had to go through Samaria, they would go around. They would not want to go through. They did not want to bump into a Samaritan. They did not want to have conversation with a Samaritan. They did not want to buy food from a Samaritan. They just avoided them. I mean, it's, it's you, know, you know, we see racism in our day. It's very much similar. I mean, they, they, were, they, were, they were born and they were raised to hate the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were born to have opposition with the Jews. That's just what they were, it was built into them. Um, I don't believe they were born that way. I believe they were taught that. And I think that's how racism is. You're taught racism. So, um, uh, so let's keep going. So, so I love in verse 4, John looking back as an old man, looking back on the story and writing his gospel, he wrote, but he needed to go through Samaria. Not he wanted, not, you know, he just happened to, he needed to go through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So they come into this area uh, called Sychar. Um, it is a, if you ever go through the Old Testament, you'll hear of a, a town called Shechem. And this is Shechem. Shechem and Sakar are the same thing. Uh, Shechem has a big place in the Old Testament. Um, but of course, the Jews, they don't want to call it Shechem anymore, so they actually gave it a different name. They called it Sakar, which means drunken, most likely because they say that the, the Jews put this upon them, changing the name. But Shechem was the first place when Abram, uh, when Abram came into the land of Canaan from Babylon, uh, Babylon, this is where he came. He stopped in Shechem. 
This is where God first appeared to Abraham in Canaan, or in the promised land, and renewed his promise of giving the land to him and his descendants. Uh, this is where uh, Abram built an altar uh, to the Lord there in Shechem. This is where Jacob built an altar to the Lord there. Uh, this is where Jacob uh, bought a plot of land um, from the Amorites and he gave to his son Joseph, which you guys know the story was his favorite son. Um, you know, he gave this land there. There was a well built there in Sakar. Um, this is where when uh, they came out of the promised land, Joseph said, bring my, you know, before he died, he said, take my bones from Egypt and I want you to take it back to the land of my fathers. This is where they take Joseph's bones and leave them there in Shechem or Sakar. Um, and this is also, if you go through the book of Joshua, as they're going through the promised land, they get to this area of Shechem, this very important Old Testament area, especially when it comes to the promised land. And uh, this is where he's, he's on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and he sets up an altar on Mount, on Mount Gerizim, and he, he pronounces the blessing and cursings upon Israel if they follow or they're disobedient. Um, so this has a major part in the Old Testament, in the history. Um, and I wonder if that's the reason Jesus came here. We and Caroline were just talking about on the way here how it must have been for Christ to sit down on a well of Jacob. To, to sit down in an area that, that he had brought them through the promised land. That he had well, what, brought them to the promised land. That he had brought them through. Gave them so many victories and set them up in this area. And, and for him to sit in that area and go, man, the things that have happened here. The people that have come to this well. I can't imagine what that meant for Christ. He probably has waited an eternity for this. And so, uh, so, that's, so it's, it's a very important place to the Jews. Uh, or well, it was but when it was Shechem. But now it's in Samaria, so they avoid it. Which is just super unfortunate for them. Um, now, actually, it is in Palestine. Uh, controlled area. Uh, you cannot, Israel, Israel is not allowed to go there. If you're an Israelite, you're not allowed to go to Jacob's well. I know that because I have a friend, you guys know the Wootens, Isaac Wooten. They are on a trail right now, and I texted him. I was like, hey, are you anywhere at Jacob's well? He goes, no, we can't go there. It's Palestine control, but, you know, maybe one day. And I was like, yeah, probably one day. So, um, so verse 5 says, they come to the city of Samaria, which is called Sakar, near the plot of ground. So we just talked about that. Verse 6, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is about noon. Um, it was not a time that you probably wanted to be walking around, traveling. Um, it was a very hot time of day. Um, so Jesus finds himself going there. And we know that he sends his disciples on to get food. He says, go into the city. I want you to get food. I'm going to go sit down on this well. All this must be really weird to the disciples. Think about it. Their whole lives were told to avoid Samaria, to not touch Samaritans, not talk to Samaritans, to look down upon Samaritans. And now they're following a Christ who says we must go to Samaria. This is a, a big, it's kind of a no-no for them, right? I mean, they're just like, this doesn't make sense. But he's the Messiah. We respect him. We're going to follow what he says. Um, so they come into the city, and Jesus is wearied from his journey. Now, his journey, literally, to go from Judea to Galilee takes about three days, and you walk for three days. They would take a much longer journey if you avoided Samaria. It would take you around, and it would put a lot of significant time on there. But Jesus was weary. And I think it's so cool that Jesus, and, and again, John showing Jesus' humanity, being God, being the Son of Man, yet putting on a frame like ours, he was exhausted. He was probably thirsty. He, we know he was hungry because he sent his disciples on to get food. 
I just, I, I love that when we get weary, we can look upon a Savior that was weary. And I think it's an important thing to recognize, especially in ministry, that it's okay to be weary, that it's okay to be exhausted. But what you don't want to do is be weary of ministry. Be weary in ministry. Be weary doing God's work. And when I say ministry, that can mean anything. That can mean, you know, you lead a Bible study. That can mean that you just talk to somebody about Christ. It means, you know, be weary in your journey with God. That's okay. God never said that being a Christian was going to be easy, right? It is exhausting sometimes, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Jesus, he was weary. I think it's okay to be weary in your journey and come to a Savior who knows what it meant to be weary in your journey. The problem is, is when you become weary of. And that's what happens sometimes. Some people get weary of ministry. Some people get weary of their journey with Christ and they step out. They get off with the journey. So be weary. That's fine. If you're, if you're exhausted in your walk, that's okay. Come, get prayer, get talk. I mean, you come to your, your, your church, your, your leaders, you know, your friends and say, I'm just weary on my journey. I want to continue walking with Christ, but it's just hard right now. Good. Let's talk and let's pray it out. The last thing you want to do is be weary of it. So... He comes and he sits on this well. Again, I, I can't, I wasn't there. I just like to speculate feelings sometimes. I just can't imagine what it was like for Jesus to sit down on Jacob's well. Him and Jacob have a very complicated relationship in a lot of ways. He knows Jacob well. That was a pun on words. He does. He knows Jacob well. <laughs> um, so, so, <laughs> so he sat he sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. In verse 7, it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said, Give me a drink. Now, if you guys know the story of the woman on the well, I think a lot of people paint the picture of the woman as this just immoral, prostitute, you know, type woman. The Bible doesn't really pan it out that way. Now, for her to be coming at noon shows that she was not accepted by the women at the time. Because if you were a woman and you needed to go draw water for your family, you came early in the morning when it was cool. And it was also a social thing. Uh, yeah, men knew that they could go to the well at certain times when it would be full of women. I mean, it's because they came in packs. They came in groups. Uh, it, was a, it was a place to meet and gossip and hang out. And so women would come there in the morning before it got hot because they had to travel carrying an empty pot and carrying a large pot of water back. So for her to be coming at noon shows that she was probably an outsider, that she was probably, even within the Samaritans, that she was not accepted. Um, so Jesus, though, God's timing, he goes, I'm going to wait until noon and I'm going to make sure that I'm sitting at this well because there's a very specific person that I want to meet when she gets there. And when she gets there, Jesus says, give me a drink. And I don't think it was like, give me a drink, you Samaritan. It wasn't like that at all. It was, a, it was a request. Give me a drink. Jesus didn't have a water pot. He didn't have any way to draw from the well. She did. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. This shocked her. I like to think, and I don't know, but as she walked to the well, she probably passed Jesus' disciples. There was probably a moment where she was coming down the road and she could see a group of Jews coming down the road. And I wonder what she thought. I wonder if she goes, oh no, here comes a group of men. Oh no, you're called, oh, they're Jewish. 
this is going to be uncomfortable. And there was probably a time where they, they passed by each other and there was probably in their nature to just look down upon her because one, she was a woman and two, she was a Samaritan. Three, they knew she was coming at noon, so something was up. She wasn't just like any other woman. So there was probably this, this she was already showing up to the well feeling oppressed, feeling uh, uh, just sad. And Jesus probably sensed this. And he probably knew this is what his disciples would do as they walked by. And she goes, why are you talking to me? One, aren't you a Jew? So there was something about Jesus' appearance that showed that he was a Jew. And it was true. They would, you know, he would wear his, his shawl, I think there's one back there, that had the blue stripes on it. And the blue stripes represents, one, that he's Jewish, but two, that he was a rabbi. And for, her to, for him to sit there and talk with her was, was unfound. I mean, this had never happened in her life, probably. Rabbis did not talk to women in public. Pharisees did not talk to their wives and daughters in public. That's how strictly religious they were. They actually had sects of Pharisees that were called the bruised and bleeding. Because literally, if a woman came up, they would close their eyes, and they would keep their eyes closed even if they bumped into things. And people would look at them and go, that guy's got lots of cuts and bruises. He is super spiritual. No lie. I mean, they, they had Pharisees that would close their eyes and just rather bump into things than actually look at women. And so, for, her, for one, for Jesus to put his eyes upon her, and, and they lock eyes, and she's like, you're looking at me. This is strange. And then to speak to me, this is strange. Aren't you a Jew? You have, you have no you know, dealings with me, and you ask a drink from me? Uh, this, 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 and I love how Jesus, you know, she, he knew this would be the reaction from her. And then Jesus says this. Jesus answered and said to her, and remember, Jesus is weary. He's just tired. He just wants a drink. He was probably so excited spiritually for this interaction to happen, but his physical frame is exhausted. And for her, her physical frame probably wasn't as exhausted, but I think her emotional frame is very much tattered. Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God, what's the gift of God? It's in John 3.16. Huh? His son. And through salvation and we a son we get. You shall have everlasting life. He calls that constantly. This is the gift of God. If you knew everlasting life. If you knew me. If you knew who I was speaking to you. If you knew spiritual things. Just like he said to Nicodemus. And I asked you to give me a drink. You would have asked me to give you living water. Now this is kind of a play on words. Uh, because living water in those times was a real thing. Um, there was a very physical meaning to it, but there's also a very spiritual meaning to it. Now, Jesus means the spiritual meaning, but she, in her mind, goes straight to the physical. Now, they consider living water, water that moved, water that naturally flowed or bubbled up or sprung up from the earth. So a deep well, like Jacob's well, which is about 100 feet deep, it's about 8 feet wide, um, it would have at the bottom living water. It was water that bubbled up. It would have been filtered through the earth. It would have been cold because of the geothermal temperatures of the earth. Um, it, it was clean because of that. So it was, it was what you wanted. Like if you went into a city, imagine this. Okay, if you leave your pool off, you leave the pump off on your pool for the summer, what, what happens to it? It gets nasty. It gets green. Stuff starts floating in it. The frogs get in it. Then you get the tadpoles. Well, think of wells that didn't 
you know, bubble up. Think of wells that just held water, stagnant water. They would often have things swimming in it. There would be colors and different things like that. And if you got a cup of that, you're like, okay, thanks. <laughs> but you had to drink it, you know. There's some protein in there, probably some extra nutrients. But living water, if you went to a, a well that had living water, flowing water, you would get cold, clean water. And that's in her mind was going, you got cold, clean water? Like, you have living water? And so Jesus says, if you had asked me, I would give you this living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? There's another joke coming. Who gave us that, or who gave us that well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? So typically what the disciples would carry would be like a leather pouch and they would take that leather pouch and they would be able to lower it down into the well and then we bring it back up and it would hold the water. And so uh, he obviously sent that away with the disciples. I think he did that on purpose. And so he's sitting there and she goes, well, okay, well, you have living water. You don't even have a, uh, you don't even have anything to hold this living. How could you have water without anything? You know, and so she's trying in the physical, trying to figure it out and she doesn't understand. And she goes, are you greater than our father, Jacob? This is where Jacob, Jesus could have said, this is Jacob's well, but I knew Jacob well. <laughs> Not my joke, but I had to do it. But it's true. I, I think it's so interesting. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? One, it shows that she knows the Pentateuch, that she has learned Genesis, right? She has gone through the scriptures, and she's been taught the scriptures, and she knows these things. She knows our father, Jacob. She knows the area she lives in, and she says, are you greater than him? And Jesus probably just thought in his mind, like, you have no idea who I am. You have no idea the things that I've done. She could have said, yeah, I gave Jacob a new name. Or he could have said, I gave Jacob a new name. And in all that time, and everything that Jesus is doing, wanting to give her a new life, give her eternal life, give her abundant life, give her what would be considered a new life, a new name, a new journey, he could have said, well, yeah, I know Jacob. He was the heel catcher. You know, He's the one that, uh, that came after Esau, but then tricked him out of his uh, birthright. He was a trickster. He was, you know, that's what he was known as. You know? But one day, I, he was weary on his journey. Because if you go back to the story, you know, it says that Jacob was weary, and he went and he sat down, he fell asleep. What happened? Jesus shows up. <laughs> they wrestle all night. They wrestle. Uh, and at one time, Jacob had a dream where he saw a ladder and angels were coming from heaven to earth, you know, and going back and forth. And he goes, I am that ladder. Jacob sleeps at the bottom of my ladder is what he could have said. He goes, yeah, I know Jacob. We wrestled one time. <laughs> you know, we wrestled for a long time. He's, he's a pretty good wrestler. You know, they went on for a while, but I got him at the end. I kind of just supernaturally jacked his hip up, you know. <laughs> but not only did I do that, I gave Jacob a new path. I made him Israel. I gave him a new name. He was weary on his journey and I gave him a new journey. Because that's what Jesus does. And that's what he is intending for this woman. And so she says, are you greater than Jacob? So first he goes from a Jew. And now she goes, okay, well this guy is obviously you know, different. You know, Are you greater than Jacob? She's trying to figure out who this guy is. And Jesus answered in verse 13 and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. When she said, this well is deep and you have nothing to draw with, the word there goes to pit. That this pit is deep. And I think a lot of ways she may have, this is how she saw her life. As a pit. As a struggle. And, and, and Jesus says, okay, you see your life as a pit. 
that, that, that people can draw water from. But what I tell you, I give you a fountain. I will fill your pit with a fountain where water will be springing up. He changes the words and says, you see a pit, a deep well, I see a fountain of water springing up. One you will never run out of. Uh, you'll never lose thirst of. You know, And for a woman who has to leave in the heat of the day and travel every day by herself to carry water, that is a wearisome journey. She has got to be tired of that. And Jesus says, well, I can give you water where you never have to come back here again. That would be pretty intriguing, right? In the physical, right? And, and again, she's still thinking in the physical. That would be pretty intriguing. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's like, yeah, I want some of this. Like, this is good. <laughs> give me some water where I don't have to come back here. But look at it deeper. You mean you can give me something where I don't have to walk on this path anymore, that I don't have to take this shameful path that I come here every single day. This was starting to mean more to her, I think. You mean you can give me a way out of this life? That you can give me a way out of my wearisome journey? And I think it's so cool that Jesus comes to her weary of his journey, meets a woman weary of her journey, and they're having this conversation here. And Jesus says... In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, You have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Now, this is where a lot of people go, she's immoral. You know, that she's some kind of whoremonger, that she's some kind of, um, uh, what's the word, um, What's that word when a uh, when you would call <laughs> this is bad when you call a woman that ruins a household homewrecker? Home that's it. <laughs> a lot of people say that she's a homewrecker, but if you if you read it, she's had five husbands, right? It doesn't say that you know we don't know if she's a widow. We don't know if that she left them or that he left her. You know we don't know those things. We don't even know her name, and so but a lot of people say well she's obviously an immoral woman. And now she's with a man. And a lot of people say that this is her living boyfriend, but I don't see where it says that anywhere in here. It just says that you now have, you're not, you, you, you have one that you consider your husband. That's kind of the way the words go, but he's not your husband. And Jesus calls her out on it. Like, I have no husband. Well, I know you've had five husbands and now you're with somebody who's not your husband. And she knows what Jesus is thinking. You know, Jesus knows what's going on. And she's starting to see, oh, okay. And what does she do when she's confronted in this? Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> All right? I mean, there, one, there's no reason for you to be talking to me. You're a Jew. That was the first thing he saw. she saw him as. And then it goes on to say, okay, well, are you greater than Jacob? She's noticing that there's something different about him. Are you greater than Jacob? And now she sees them as a, some kind of prophet. I perceive that you are. You see the progression? You see that Jesus and his words, uh, the progression that's happening in her life, she's starting to notice that this man in front of her may be more than I thought in the beginning. But you see what she did? <laughs> Let's keep reading. Uh, I, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where the one ought to worship. Have you ever had a conversation with an unbeliever that you know you've been you know trying to win to christ and and you're you know you're, you're getting into some things and you know sometimes you can turn into an argument in some kind um but you notice what she did when jesus started to get close to her hurt when jesus started got close to her pain the reason she comes at noon she deflects 
she goes, well, yeah, well, get away from that for a minute. Let's let, I want you to focus on me and my sin. I want you to, what about you guys saying we can't come to Jerusalem? That, that you know, you, know you ever had that happen to you where you're in a conversation and nobody really wants to talk about the, the, the nuts and bolts of their sin and their lifestyle? They, they want to deflect, well, how could Noah have built a boat that big? You know, how, where is that boat? You know, where'd Cain's wife come from? You know, you start, they deflect. And then, again, this is the unbelieving world. They're doing what comes natural to them. Because when men get close to the light, when women get close to the light, and they begin to be exposed from the inside out, it scares them and they return to darkness. That's what the unbelieving world does. The more you understand that, the better. And so she does the exact same thing. Well, our fathers worked upon this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place. Again, she's comparing their twisted version of the Pentateuch to the Jewish original version of the Pentateuch. And Jesus said to her, woman, and when he says woman, it's not like woman. It's not. It's the same word that he used in the wedding. When Mary said, Jesus, what are you going to do about they're running out of wine? And he says, woman, don't you know it's not my time yet? It's an enduring term. It's like if we said madame, if we were French, you know, if we said lady, you know, it was an enduring term. It's the same word that he uses when, when he's on the cross and he, he basically gives his mom to John. And then, John, this is, you, you take care of this woman. You know, it's the same word that he's using there. It's an enduring term. It's not in any way a, um, you know, looking down upon her. But he but does say woman. It's kind of like in Matthew when he says son. He calls, he calls sometimes you know, those who are in need son or daughter. It's an enduring term. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Again, Jesus is taking her from the physical to the spiritual. This is hard for her because she's not born again. Therefore, she can't perceive the spiritual things. But Jesus is with her. <laughs> and Jesus has no limit of the Holy Spirit. So I imagine he's helping her understand these things. Now, he says, uh, the, one, the hour is coming. Again, she's thinking geographical. Well, I can't worship in Jerusalem. Then how can I have this living water? How can, how can, I, you know, how can I be close to God if I, if I can't do these things? And he goes, the time is coming where it won't matter where you worship. It won't matter what you're wearing. It won't matter where your feet are standing. It will matter where your heart is. And that's what he's saying. He says, that time is coming. You know, he says, you don't know what you worship. Salvation is of the Jews. And Jesus is saying that because we know the Messiah comes from the Jews. And that's what he's telling her. That the Messiah will come from the Jewish nation. That's that we understand what we worship. The Samaritans, you guys have a twisted version of what is real. And that's what he's trying to point out to her. And he's taking her out of the geographical and bringing her in the spiritual. And he says, the hour is coming now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Guys, don't you know that's where we are now? That God is desiring for us to worship him. But worship him in spirit and truth. Now... You can't worship the Father unless you've been born again. Not truly, because you must have the Spirit. You have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be born again. You have to, be, you have to receive that part of Adam that died 
You have to have that back. And that you worship in spirit. But he also says worship in truth. Because you can't worship in spirit unless you come to Jesus or come to God in truth. And I think, unfortunately, some people still try to come and worship with a mask on. That we still come to church portraying to be something spiritually or religiously that we're just not on the inside. Jesus says, I want the dirtiness inside you to come to God in truth. And your truth and my spirit, you can have true worship with God. He says, God is spirit. That was probably profound for her, to this conversation to be happening. God is spirit, and you must worship him in spirit. What she's saying is, you right now are all flesh. You are, you are mind, body, soul, flesh. You, are, you, are, you have nothing spiritual in you. You are spiritually dead, and that's how we're all born, right? And so he says, you can't worship. Your flesh cannot have communion with God. You cannot worship God in your state. But the time is coming when you will have my spirit upon you and you will be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. Not only that, we must worship God in spirit and truth. So let me just say, when you come here on a Sunday morning, that is worship, but worship goes well beyond music. Well, worship goes well beyond what Josh does. I mean, it's the greatest form of it, but it goes well beyond. You worship God with your life. You worship God every single day with how you live, how you talk, what you do, what you say, you know, the interactions you have. It, it, worship goes well beyond what happens here on Sunday mornings. It's true. And he says, come to me in truth and in spirit, and we will have true communion and true worship. And he says, you must worship in spirit and truth. Guys, don't come, don't, don't come to worship God faking it. Don't come to worship God, portraying something. Come to Him in all your dirtiness. Come to Him in all your flaws, all your faults. Because there will be a day when you will be incorruptible, but now you are corruptible. There will be a day, like I said in the beginning, that you will stand before the throne faultless. But that's not yet. Come to Him in your worst shape. That's fine, but do it in truth. But also in truth, you must understand the things of God and you must know this God that you're worshiping and you must know the, what the word says about Jesus about God in order to worship in truth as well so in verse 25 the woman said to him I know that the Messiah is coming so she has an idea of, of, of what's to come you know that there will be you know she, she knows Deuteronomy that's where you know you can go back and it talks about I will send a prophet I will send one and I'll put my words in his mouth and so uh, she knows these things who is called Christ now remember, Messiah, that's just, you know, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which is the Hebrew word. You know, Jesus' name is not Jesus Christ. It's just Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, meaning that he is the Messiah. We don't really know his last name. It doesn't really matter. Um, uh, but the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, I, again, I like to like put myself in like, you ever been like in a close proximity and like listen to people's conversations, you know, and you're just like, you're into it. You know, it's like they're just talking about something crazy and like, you're like, oh, I wonder what they're going to do about it. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm just nosy like that. I just put myself in these situations like I wish I could have been sitting on the other side of the well, you know, and listening to this conversation. Because up to this point, Jesus had not said who he was. He had not proclaimed it to anybody. He had sat down with the disciples, and, and they had a good idea that this was Messiah, the things that he had done. I mean, the Pharisees even came to him and said, we know that you are a prophet from God. They said, we know that you are a man come from God to teach. But in all truth, he was God come to teach man. 
Because that's the difference. Some people say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, he's probably a good guy. He had a lot of good things to say. And that's how a lot of people go to hell thinking, unfortunately. But for us and for you, I hope that you understand that he was not a man sent from God. He was God come to teach. You have to make that distinction in your own life. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I'm sure he whispered it because he probably didn't want a lot of people hearing it. But he reveals herself, himself as the Messiah to her. This had not happened. Even with his own disciples, they say, who do, who do you say that I am? Right? And when people said, who are you? And, you know, he would, he would round about, you know, he would use par- uh, parables and different ways to get around the question. You know, he knew there was a time where his hour was coming. But for now, he hadn't done that. Yet he chose a woman who was considered trash to the Jewish people to sit at a well and reveal himself to her on her weary journey. I love that he does this. He says, I who speak to you am he. Um, I, I just wish I was there. I would have just, you know, choked on something, you know, like fell off the well, maybe into the well. Like I just would have been like, you know, anyway, that's beside the point. Verse 27, and at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked to with a woman. All this is happening. All this is happening in this woman's life and they marveled. That he, and then of course they didn't know what was happening, but he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So in their hearts, they go, well, this is strange. He's a rabbi, he's, you know, potentially the Messiah, the Son of Man, and he's talking with a woman, not to mention a Samaritan woman, but they had a reverence for him, that one, they, when they said, let's go through Samaria, they said, okay, <laughs> this is a little weird, but Okay. Go into a Samaritan city and buy food. Okay, are you sure? You know, and then come back to see him talking with the woman. That no doubt, again, they must have walked past. I mean, I don't know if that happened. That's extra biblical, so we don't need to dwell on it. But they're going, that's the woman we walked by. That's the one Peter said, look at that dirty woman. You know, it's like, I wonder if that conversation, they're just going, oh gosh, that's the woman that we walked past and that we looked down upon. And now he's talking with her. Verse 28, then the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She left her water pot. I mean, she just left it and ran. She just goes, I who you say I am, I, that I am the Messiah is what he says. And she leaves her water pot and she goes right into the city of Samaria, the, the city of Sakar. And a lot of people say she left her water pot just like they left their nets and followed after Jesus. I think she left her water pots because she didn't want to be gone long. She wanted to get back to him. She wanted to go into the city, tell people that this is the Messiah, and then get back to him as fast as possible. Get back to her water pot. Or maybe he just needed some drink still. I don't know. It doesn't, know, it doesn't show us that he ever gave her a drink, but he never brought it up again. And the woman left her water pot. In verse 29, said, Come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Did he do that? No. That's not 100% truthful, but that's okay. You know, he didn't say all the things you ever did. He just told you you had five husbands and now you have one that's not your husband. Um, but I love that she did that because it got everybody intrigued. Probably got a lot of those guys scared, right? <laughs> you know, like, you know, they're all standing around with their wives and she shows up and she's obviously the one that the wives didn't want to be around, didn't want their husbands around. And then she comes in, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. They're like, oh. you know, they're like, oh gosh, like everything, like. You know, so, yeah, they probably got a little nervous. But it's interesting, she it says they came to the men. She still did not comfortable, feel comfortable going to the women. 
She came to the men. She must have some uh, uh, comfortable uh, way about her to come and be around men. Maybe, maybe she was just afraid to go to the women. Um, and they went out of the city and came to him. Verse 30. In verse 31, it says, In the meantime, his disciples urged him, say, Rabbi, eat. Jesus wasn't concerned about his hunger or his thirst, but they were. And I think that's important and part of their, you know, they could see he was physically exhausted. They couldn't see the spiritual things, but they could see that he was physically exhausted. And they did the right thing by saying, you need to eat. You know, you have, you're all weary. It's kind of like when you see a brother or sister in Christ that is spiritually weary and you say, you need to rest a little. You need to, what is that word? Sit and soak. <laughs> that's one of those just like classic Christian things. You need to sit and soak. You know, uh, but they were taking care of his physical frame. I, I, I just that's that's friendship. In verse thirty-two, but he said to them, "I have food to eat of which you do not know." Therefore, his disciples said to one another, "Has anyone brought him anything to eat?" <laughs> They're like, "How's he got food that we don't know about?" Like, you sent us into the city to get food. We didn't want to go because we had to touch Samaritans probably or buy stuff from them. You sent us there. Did somebody give him food? Like, where did you get food from? You know. And so, you know, they, uh, in the verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do, do you not say that there are still four months and then comes to the harvest? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Do you? Oh, yeah, do you not say? Therefore, there are four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for the harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. But both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I ever did. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Two days. No Jew would want to stay there for two minutes. And Jesus stayed there for two days. And many of them believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Those words right there are not found anywhere else but in John's writings, the Savior of the world. Because for the Jew to say the Savior of the world meant that salvation went outside the Jews. And the Jews did not think the Samaritans were worthy of salvation, that they would not be part of the resurrection. That's what they hoped, right? But that's not the way Jesus thought. So for him to say the savior of the world, that brought everybody around them that they despised and all these other races and religions and everything. And he says, he's the savior of all of them. This was a profound thing. So I love how Jesus takes a, takes a moment with his disciples and he's using, with her he used the physical thirst to get her intrigued to the spiritual things. And now with his disciples, he's using physical hunger to get them intrigued with spiritual things. He says, you... I have a food to eat that you don't know of. That, that the doing the will of my Father is more satisfying to me than fulfilling my physical needs. And it should be that way for us. That when we put the spiritual things first, that, that would be more joyful for us. And that would be more satisfying for us than to fulfill our physical needs. Yeah, we need food. <laughs> we need water. 
But he's saying when you're hungry and you eat, it's a good feeling, right? Your your body gets some relief, you know, you get full, you get a little tired, you know, it's, you know, if you're like me, you eat too much and then you need a, you know, <laughs> to lay down or sit down, you know. You know, he's saying I want I want the spiritual things to be more joyful. That fulfilling that little bit of spiritual hunger and thirst be more joyful and more of a desire for you than fulfill your physical needs is what he's saying. Then he goes on to say, you say wait four months and then go for the harvest. He's saying, you know, we've, we've sown the seeds. You know, now we have to wait for, to, to gather the fruit. He says, don't say that. Don't wait. He who sows, there's those who reap. You need to begin to sow. You need to begin to reap. You are now doing a work, disciples, of which you have not labored. You know, right before this, they were baptizing people. That comes straight from John the Baptist's ministry. Jesus was doing exactly what John the Baptist was doing, uh, baptizing people under repentance. Jesus carried it on through his disciples. It does say that Jesus himself did not baptize, um, that he held that superiority over it. But he did partake in the same thing that John the Baptist did. And now a lot of these people are coming and have either been known John the Baptist or been baptized, maybe not in Samaria, but uh, you know the, 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 disciples, the disciples will benefit and they will reap that which they have not sown. And he's trying to explain this to them. And then all of a sudden all the Samaritans come back and they're like, we, tell us, you know, tell us what you told her. You know, and they, 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 they begin to believe. And the cool thing is what it says is now we believe not because of what you said, speaking of the woman, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ. These people that were despised by the Jews only had to hear his words to believe. If you go back to when he was in Jerusalem, they had to see his miracles for those to believe. The, the Pharisees said, we see what you're doing. We can see the miracles. Therefore, we perceive that you are a man of God. These people just said, we hear your words and we know. Because that's what faith is, right? Faith is, you know, the evidence of things unseen. And we should have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I'm sure it just meant so much for him. You know, if you know the story of Samaria, um, this it's going to come back up in the, the disciples' life. They're going to go there and they can't find a hotel room. So, you know, James and John get all excited. Even though this all happened already, they go into Samaria and they say, Jesus, we can't get a house or a place to stay. Will you just wipe out the Samaritans? Will you just send fire down and destroy them? That's how they got the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Um, but if you go to Acts chapter 8, that's where we know that um, it's, it's right after the big persecution happens. It actually says, and Saul was consenting of Stephen's death. Then the great persecution begins in the church, and it spreads. What the persecution does is it spreads the gospel out in the early church. One place it goes into was in Samaria. Philip goes into Samaria, and he begins to preach the gospel. And there are those who remember, and there is a huge revival that happens in Samaria. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, that you will reap that which you do not sow, that some sow, some reap. And so, um, so it's just a, a huge story. And there's a couple little, um, we're, we're right at 12, a couple little points I want to make um, as we go through this. And again, Jesus, being tired on his journey, stepped into a woman's life and released her from her weariness, that he could see the shame she felt having to come at noon. And he was weary spiritually of his journey and physically, and she was just weary emotionally. And he stepped into her life and her ordinary daily routine that was probably a struggle for her, and he stepped in and he changed it for her. 
That's what he does with us. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. I'm sure most of you guys have heard this. If we could get it on the board. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All right, we'll just stick with that. Oh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Look, guys, if Jesus said it, it means a lot. <laughs> you know, Jesus said in, in verse 3 that whosoever believes upon my name. When he said whosoever, he meant it. That meant the Samaritans, and he backed that up by going to Samaria. So when he says, if you're tired of the way you're living, if you're tired of your journey, if you're tired of the choices you're making, come to me. Put it upon me. I know what it's like to be weary, and I will pray for you. I will be with you. I will, I will take your burdens away because when you put upon me, if you put my freedom upon you, and you break from those bonds and those chains and that journey, it will be light. And that's his desire for us. He wants to remove those heavy burdens, those shames, those guilts, our weariness, and run free into our eternal life. Because the Bible says that we are experiencing eternal life now. That, that those who believe have everlasting life. That means it's not something you will have. It means it's something you do have now. Another point I want to make, that we must know Jesus as our Savior. Again, look at the progression. It went from a Jew to are you greater than Jacob? To I think you're a prophet. To all of a sudden, you're the Messiah. Look at the progression in her own life. There had to be that, that, that growth in her life for her to understand who this was and that Jesus spent time with him. Again, going back to the story in the wilderness, Jesus said, Son of Man must be lifted up. Guys, we have to know what our Savior is to us and who that is that hung on the cross and who came off that cross and was resurrected three days. And we have to believe that our salvation is in him. Because if you just believe Jesus was crucified... That doesn't really save you. But if you look upon what he did on that cross and that he came out that tomb and that that's the reason I'll stand faultless before the throne one day, then it will be. Again, there has to be a progression. You have to believe those things. Um, Jesus used hunger and thirst as necessities to our frames. You know, this is that we, we desire food and we desire water, but they are inferior to the things of God. That... Somewhere in your life, you should be experiencing spiritual fruit. You should be experiencing spiritual fulfillment, joyous fulfillment, and doing God's work. The same, like, think of, like, your favorite food. Like, right now, it's church, so you're all thinking, where am I going to go eat later, right? You know, it's like, you know, am I going to Sonny's? You know, oh, that sounds satisfying. You know, it's like, am I going to, I don't even know, um, Midtown Caboose. You know, that was the last time I saw Jason. So, you know, it's like you think about those things, you go, I'm going to be so physically satisfied once I sit down and have that meal. Jesus says, I want you to think about spiritual things that way. That you desire spiritual fruit in your life when you do the work of God. And, and, and whether it's you're doing worship, whether you're teaching, whether you're discipling, whether you're pastoring, whether you're just leading a Bible study, whether you're just talking to your friend who needs to know Christ, whether you're praying in your room, that you find fulfillment and satisfaction in those that is over uh, what it feels like to absorb food. Also, what he says that he says we should be waiting. We should not be waiting for the harvest, and we certainly should not keep the harvest waiting. 
right? He says the fields are white. When the fields got white, that means uh, they've gone past the harvest. That means they, they, they didn't get it in time and the vines begin to grow white. He's saying, he's, don't wait for that. He says, begin to labor. Begin now. We should be doing God's work. Every single one of us. It's not left up to the church leadership. It's not left up to the pastor. It's every single one of us. And I love what Jesus said. He says, he who reaps receives wages. He's saying, if you reap, if you sow, there's a reward for you. Now, we don't do it for the reward because all that's his anyway. He is the ultimate gatherer of the harvest and he's the ultimate gatherer of glory. Yet we receive wages. It also says that you gather fruit for eternal life. That when you do God's work, you're, you're doing eternal things. And, and you can be a part of that. And that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. You know, like, I'm here today and I may sow a seed in your life. I may, I may say something that you'll remember. And then down the road, you know, it, it, it helps you out. And it, and it gets you past something. And then you'll be able to say, oh, look what Jesus is doing. And then Jay, uh, Jason can reap of those benefits, you know. There are many people here that have been walking with Christ for a long time that Jason gets to reap and see the fruit in your life of some seed that someone else sowed. What Jesus says, if it's done the right way, those who sow and those who reap, they rejoice together. Unfortunately, it's not always that way. <laughs> Within churches, we get it wrong sometimes. But we should be rejoicing together. And the last thing I want to go to, and it's because we're in John, John chapter 3, verse 16. You guys know the verse, God so loved the world. And when he says love the world, he was not speaking of quantity. Not how much love God had. It, sp it spoke about his quality of love. He made sure that we were all invited under this love. Again, whosoever means whoever believes in him should not perish, but have literally in the moment eternal life. I'm paraphrasing. Which is the gift of God. And the love that Jesus had for this woman backs up his own words. Jesus stepped outside of rabbinical culture he stepped outside of Jewish culture. He stepped outside of gender bias in order to save this woman from her path, to get her off her journey. And that's something that we can all partake in. That's the heart of God that we should all have for others around us. Unfortunately, we have, we have things that are, are born, in, you know, that are bred inside us and taught to us and to look down at certain people, whether it's for race or gender or anything like that, culture. And Jesus says, I, I'm going to step outside of all that. I'm going to break these rules. Jesus never broke any of God's laws when he did what he did with this woman. You have to understand that. But he did break a, break a few people's opinions. And so for him, you know, that's my savior. That's the one I look at. That, you know, that's when I see somebody dying, when I look to the cross in my own mind, you know, I know he's not hanging there anymore because he is resurrected. He's at the right hand of God and I get to partake in his righteousness. I get to be seated with him in heavenly places. I know all these things, but when I look at the cross, I go, man, just like this woman, there's a time in my life where he took me out and he gave me a new path. I would almost look at it as like he gave me a new name, a new journey. Because I can go back and look and say, this is where this big thing happened. And this is how I decided to cope with it. And this is how the life I lived. I was so disillusioned in the world because I wanted to fulfill that God-sized hole inside of me with everything else. But it was when I, when I stopped being disillusioned and, and I, I, I looked at God and said, I can't do this. He, received, he accepted me and he brought me in and he changed my path. 
He changed my journey, and He can do that for every single one of you. If it's you and you're struggling, even if you're a born-again Christian, you can still be weary, and you can still be struggling, and you can still be going down a bad path, and He still wants to save you from that bad path. Yeah, you're saved by grace. Yes, you're covered in the blood, but that doesn't mean you're not going to go make a bad choice. And for the unbelieving world, he wants and desires to do that. I think sometimes we, we enter into conversations, and whether it's evangelism, and you just want to just show people what you know, um, you know, and, and you look for arguments because the arguments are where people are, you know, it's like the argument never works. Look what Jesus did. She threw out an argument. He didn't even, he just said, uh, it doesn't matter about that. The time is coming where it doesn't matter where you worship, is what he says. You know, winning a soul to Christ, winning a soul to himself was way more important than winning an argument. And it should be that way for us as well. And we don't know her name. Most likely, she probably would have been a part of the big revival. Uh, Some believe that she was maybe even in Jerusalem, uh, in the upper room. We don't know these things. I do know that when I get to heaven, I want to meet her. (laughs) You know? Which is like a classic teacher thing to say. But it's true. We don't know. He didn't name her. He didn't, you know, he, he just said, this is my interaction with her. And John made it a, a important for him, you know. And again, if you notice, the disciples aren't there. It's him and the woman. So how do we know all these things? Well, most people believe that, yeah, Jesus could have sat down with his disciples and told them word for word what happened. But a lot of people believe that she went out telling people what happened. That she went out proclaiming, this is what the conversation was. She was not ashamed of who she was before. She didn't care. All she was excited about was who she was now. And that's the way it should be for us. Um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to end this. Um, but like I said, man, if you're, if you're weary, if you're just tired, if, 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 if you've grown weary of, of, of a path you're on, whether it's a struggle or whether if it's just, man, I just want to throw in the towel, don't leave here like that. Jesus says, take upon my yoke. <laughs> I'll take your hard stuff. I'll give you my light stuff. Because that's what I do. I want to give you a better life. I want to give you abundant life. You're, you're partaking in eternal life right now. Therefore, I want to make that better. <laughs> so, before we leave today, just, you know, if you need to find me, find Jason, find anybody uh, that you want to pray with, uh, I urge you to do that. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the God you are. We thank you for everything. That we can sit in a room uh, in Tallahassee and just dive into your word and dive into a story written by John in order to teach us who you are. That we can glean from you. That you would want to teach us these things, Lord. That you show us where we sit and you show us where you sit. And Lord, we just want to be at your feet. And I ask that everybody here, Lord, uh, go out with this heart, Lord. The heart that you have for people. Um, And that you want to save them, Lord, as just as much as you wanted to save us. Again, I I ask that you continue to bless this church, that you you continue to do a mighty work here, Lord, um, in everybody's life, Lord. And uh, we just ask and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Break.